Yeah, great to have you here. Part two of a series called Instinct. If you were not here last week, uh, I'd really encourage you go get go get a copy, go watch online. And here's why is is that in these three weeks, we're looking at one specific chapter in the Bible, which I think is probably one of the most loaded chapters in all of the Bible. It's Genesis chapter three. We're working from an idea that in the beginning, when God had everything just set, you get this picture in Genesis chapter three of what mankind's first interactions with God was like. What the enemy was doing in the garden and how it all reflects what is still going on today because we believe that what was going on then is, is, is it reflects the instincts of mankind which are still in play. Not a lot's changed in ever X thousands of years, however many that was ago. Nothing has really changed. We still have some of the same basic human instincts and we need to fight most of those instincts and, and kick those to the side so we can adopt the instincts of our Heavenly Father. But you also see, and we'll look at this today, the instincts of the enemy. There was a serpent in the garden and what he does is fascinating. And then next week we'll look at the vantage point of God and look at, hey, what are the divine instincts? What is God really like? Like, what's his natural reaction to when things happen? And what does he do? How does he respond? How does he think? What are his instincts? And so go get a copy of last week's and then jump in with me today as we look at the instincts of our spiritual enemy. So if you have your Bible, go to Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read the story and then we'll kind of kick back into it and, and kind of break down a few different ideas. So if you have your Bible, Genesis 3, verse number 1, it says this. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he says to the woman, Has God indeed said, or did God really say, that you can't eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, Well, we can eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but uh, the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. And then the serpent said to the woman, you're not going to die because God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Oh, this is and that's it. And then he's done. So the rest of the story moves on. And we read most of it last week is that then Eve says, oh, well, all right. I mean, it looks good. It seems like a good idea. I'll take I'll eat here. Hubby standing around doing nothing. I'm going to give to you. Um, some too. And so, uh, you know, then all of a sudden it all breaks loose. And then there's one more verse at the end that we'll look at where the serpent kind of re-enters the story. But here's what I wanted you to see is that there is something that is going on with the enemy and that there is a plan. There is a method. He has a way about him. He has a natural instinct. And I want you to dial into that. Now, C.S. Lewis made a good point. He said that there are two extremes to thinking about demons or the devil or, or anything around that realm. He said that the two extremes are equally bad. He said one of them is to discount it completely and altogether, like just to ignore it, to say it doesn't exist and, and, and to discount it as, as nonsense. He said that would be a grave error to do that. But the other extreme is, is, is to only think about it and to always think about it and have it too much on your mind. And so be careful here. There's a balance to this, but know that in the story, although He's not the centerpiece of the story. He's certainly not the centerpiece of the outcome of the story, but he's a part and he's webbed his way in and begin to influence the thing really, really subtly. Five thoughts on your spiritual enemy today, because I want you to know what his instincts are. Last week, we talked about yours and what you need to fight against. Today, we will talk about the enemy and his instincts and what I want you to be completely aware of, or at least as much as you possibly 
can. Number one is this, if you're taking notes, the first thing that it says about the serpent is that the serpent was cunning. It actually says that he was more cunning than any other animal on the planet. As a matter of fact, another translation, depending on what Bible you're reading, would say crafty. Everybody say crafty. He's crafty. See, what we have is going back to the idea that some of us have Tom and Jerry theology, that some of us have like weird, strange ideas. How many of you know that in the cartoon world, the devil has a costume? And what color is his costume? Red. And he has pointy little horns. He has a pointy beard. Okay. Maybe in your cartoon. But it, point, pointy little horns. And then he has a tail. And I don't understand. There's like a spade at the end of the tail. You know what I'm saying? So like this is kind of the image that you have this this kind of evil looking, you know, thing. And, and I don't think that's true. I don't think that bears out with anything that the Bible would teach. That's just kind of goofy folklore stuff. And, and, and here's why. If you look at where we believe maybe the origin of Satan comes from as a fallen angel, the, the, he would have been beautiful. He would have been attractive. Yeah, you know, certain certain Old Testament prophets, you know, kind of described him as possibly even like having uh, musical instruments and the ability to lead worship. And so in, incredibly influential. And so look at what the, the Genesis three describes him as. He was incredibly cunning or crafty. And so what I want to get you to see is this, is that he is less um, pointy tail and he's probably more good looking, smooth talking magician. Y'all like magicians? Have y'all ever been to like a great magic show? Now, no such thing as magic. They've even kind of like abandoned that. Most of them call themselves illusionists now, right? And so, but I remember being a kid and I was in Atlanta, Georgia. There's a place that was, I don't know if it's still there or not. It was so long ago. It's called the underground. And I was, it was in Atlanta and there was a street magician. And, and man, I'm sitting there with my youth pastor. We had taken a trip and I can't remember what we were doing, but I'm sitting there with my youth pastor and we're hanging out watching this guy do these magic tricks. And I am just blown away. I'm like 13 years old. And the coolest part of the magic trick was, is that during the act, he had removed my youth pastor's watch from his wrist without him ever knowing it. And this was like one of those kind of band and the point that had removed it throughout the performance and then had worked it back into the, to the, to the show and into the act and gave it back to him. And we're all like, Oh my gosh, how did he do that? And then, you know, if you, if you watch like, I don't know if you watch like, um, America's got talent, you watch a guy like Matt Franco, there's a video out right now where he takes Gronk, you know, Gronk's football and, and, and he has him throw the football and then he somehow puts his own phone in the football and cuts it open. And everybody's like, how in the world do you do this stuff? So like you, you got to know that like we are fascinated by the magician and by the illusionist. And I want you to begin to think now the enemy is much more like that than he is Tom and Jerry theology. Are you with me so far? He's incredibly cunning. He's incredibly crafty. He uses because here's the deal. When you look at Satan throughout all of Scripture, if you look at his interactions with Jesus in Matthew four, if you look at his interactions with Job in Job chapter one, the enemy Never ever uses the force of power. He never ever forces anything to happen. He does not use the fa- the force of power. He actually uses the force of deception. Like it's just trickery. It's just so subtle. It's so crafty. It's so kind of in your head. As a matter of fact, I was thinking about this. I'd read um, about animal. I, I, when you got little kids and they're all in the animals, you, you know, you read up about animal stuff sometimes. I just learned some cool new stuff about birds. But, it, but anyway, just reading something about lions one time. And it was this fascinating take about how um, these lions, what they had done is, is that they had gotten surrounded 
a, a herd. And what they did was is they took the male on one side and then they had made the females go over to the other side. And what the male lion would do is he would wait until everything was ready and then he'd roar, he just let out a big, huge roar. Now, if you're smart, do you run towards the roar or away from the roar? Yeah, okay, good. Y'all were like, this is a trick question. I don't know. It's no, you always run away. Okay. If there's a fire, you run away from the fire. Okay. So all you kids just learned something special there. So the, the, but, but what was over there, they had planned a trap, a deceptive trap that if I roar here and send them this way, they're going to go right into now. Listen to this. Listen to this. I read that. And then listen to this first Peter five, eight, be self-controlled. He's talking to you, be self-controlled and be on the alert because your enemy, the devil prowls around like a what? Like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. I want you to think about that. Like there's a plan, there's a trap, there's a deception that the enemy does not use the force of power. He literally just uses the force of deception. And here's the funny thing. This is what I've noticed is that most of the time that the enemy is operating in your life, you are completely unaware of it until after everything has all gone south. It is only after everything has gone bad that you begin to step back and all of a sudden you're like, oh. Why did I do that? Why did I think that? What made me go here? Why would I do all that? And all of a sudden you're like, I've been influenced. I've been deceived. Something, I, I was bought into something that was not true. I bought into a, a lie. As a matter of fact, when you look at what Jesus said about Satan, he said that he was the father of what? Lies. Not the father of power. He has no force of power. He has no creative power. He can't make you do anything. But boy, can he suggest some things. And lay some traps. And so know this, that the first representation of the enemy, the first instinct that you have, is he has an instinct to be incredibly crafty and cunning. Now, this is what he does, and I'm going to show you how he does it, and it's fascinating. So if you read the story, the very first thing that he does is this. He says to the woman in verse number one, has God indeed said that you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So this is what he does. Number two is this, is that he begins with a suggestion. Do you see that? All he does is ask a question and create a suggestion. Did you notice that? It wasn't like, here, take this. It, was, it wasn't weird. It wasn't Wicked Witch of the East and hello, my pretty. It, was, it wasn't like that. It was simply like, hey, did God really say that? Was that a thing? Is that, is that really? Do you know what he uses? It's just the power of suggestion. We are always around the power of suggestion, aren't we? Like you ever ask, like, hey, where's a good place to go get... So, some, some great food. Like, I'm ready to go check out this new, this new Posada place in town. I'm ready to go because it's been built up. And so I have that high expectation because I'm ready to go get some good Mexican food. And so this, the power of suggestion. You ever done this with a movie? Because sometimes like, like a great movie, there's nothing worse than somebody overhyping a movie. You ever been there before? Like, oh, it's the greatest movie ever. And what they did was they built your expectations so high and then you went and saw it. You're like, it was all right. It wasn't that cool, you know, whatever. And sometimes the opposite is true. Sometimes you're like, yeah, that movie wasn't really good. And so you go in with such low expectations. You're like, no, it was pretty cool. I, I actually kind of liked it or whatever. Because why? Because you had such a low expectation. You were, you were expecting, you know, Geely and you got something better. And so, um, so my, my point is that the power of suggestion is always around you, whether it's food or movies or whatever. But watch, watch while it comes into your, your real world life and how you treat other people. Like even your own fears, your own thoughts. Your own, you ever hear anybody say like, Oh man, that medical procedure, man, that thing is awful, man. It was so painful. And then you, you, all of a sudden, obviously you have fear 
about going and doing something and you're expecting the worst to take place. Or, you know, you're, you're a student, you're like, oh, that test was so hard. Or you're at work and all of a sudden, you know, you've never even met this new boss or whatever. But somebody tells you, oh, he's so difficult to deal with. And all of a sudden you don't even know this guy, but you've got a preconceived suggestion planted in your mind. And now you read into everything is what they're doing is that he is Difficult all through the power of suggestion. Think about this. What he does to Jesus in Matthew chapter four is not very different. He begins his temptation of Jesus with this. Well, if you really are the son of God, that's it. That's the temptation. Well, I mean, if you're the son of God, you're so powerful. You're hungry. I mean, just turn rocks in the bread. I mean, you can do, you can do that I mean, because you're the son of God, right? It's so subtle. It's just such a suggestion. And I, what, what I want you to get you to see is this, is not only is it a suggestion just in general, but he, he creates a suggestion to get her to focus on the one and only thing that God said you can't have. God had literally given them everything but one thing. And so then the enemy's like, hey, but what about the one thing? You should think about the one thing. Have you thought about the one thing? The one thing's right over there. You should go think about the one thing. Did God really say that the one thing is the one thing that you can't touch? Come on, Really? You should think about it more. You ever do that with your own sin? You're like, you're like I want to beat this sin. I'm going to beat this. And all the, you just, and you're just trying to beat the sin. All you think about is the sin. <laughs> yeah, it's what a, what, a, what a waste. So my, my, my point is this, is that the enemy is always using the power of suggestion to mess with your mind and to get her to focus on the one thing that she couldn't have. That's number one, the power of suggestion. Number two is this, is that he not only begins with a suggestion, but then he creates a contradiction. Then he comes out and he says this. He says this in um, verse number three. He goes, you're not going to die. That's in essence just what his, his whole thing is. You, you know, but the woman said, well, we can't eat of the fruit of the garden. But verse four, then the serpent said, you're not going to die. So then he creates a suggestion. He starts there, but then he moves to a contradiction, which is basically just this. No, it's not. There's no way. That can't be true. That can't be right. Hey, have you ever heard stuff like this? Like, hey, it's not that big of a sin. Wait a minute. I got sizes now? It's, hey, look, it's not a big deal unless you get caught. It's normal. All guys do this. <laughs> if, if you're not cheating, you're not trying. It's not gossip because they need to know this. It's not lying. It's kind of like a little white lie. We have great ones, don't we? We contradictions. Like, I know God said this, but really, you got to, you know, like, you know, again, well, Todd, that's just not how the real world works. And these contradictions come up in your mind. So that's the way he works. Again, just the planting of ideas, the planting of thoughts. And then watch this one. This is maybe the most powerful one. So first he creates a suggestion. Second, he creates a contradiction. But then the third one is he stirs the imagination. Look at what he says next. So after, after having said, you're not going to die, verse 5, he says, For God knows that in the day that you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. What? You mean I could be like God? I can. I mean, like, how cool is that? You know, like, and so all of a sudden he just creates these planted thoughts he has ninjaed your brain and if you go look at any temptation that you're dealing with and you trace it back far enough i guarantee you what you find is this is there's these little tiny thoughts these little tiny seeds these little tiny influences and they build and they build and they build until finally you get convinced that something might actually be a good idea and you don't know it's all a lie it is all a trap it is all a deception. So that's what he does he stirs the imagination how many have ever felt like this before you felt like you get lost in your own daydreams 
you wonder and you wander with your wondering and you're like, oh, what would it be like? Wouldn't it be so cool if, and we think about everything that we don't have that we think would be so cool. If I could live there, if I could drive that, oh, if I could be single again, oh, if I could take that other job, oh, what if I could just run away? What if I could just, and what we do is we live in the fantasy world and we convince ourselves that the fantasy world would be so much better than our real world and you have no idea. That even if you did all those things, the problem with doing all those things is that wherever you go, you would just end up there and you would still be miserable inside of yourself because of all the things that you've done and all the carnage and all the wreckage you've left behind because you got bought into the idea that there was a fantasy world that was somehow better than what you currently had. And it's not true. It is all a charade. It is all an illusion. It is a trick to get you bought into a lie that is not true. And this is what Eve does. If you remember, this is the trap, isn't it? He creates a suggestion, then he brings a contradiction, and then he stirs the imagination. And then Eve, now this is what you're not going to like. Contrary to popular opinion, the devil did not make you do it. I just want to put that out there. So like never, like, you know what the devil made me do? I remember I was at this, uh, I was talking to my, my old friend uh, who, who kind of preaches in Pentecostal churches. And he tells me this funny story. He said there was a rowdy night at a Pentecostal church. And you, you know how they get rowdy if you know Pentecostal churches. And like, and, and they start shouting and hollering. And all of a sudden somebody will take off running. And, uh, and so he said this guy takes off running and he goes clear out the building and is running around the building. But he trips on a route, it's dark, it's an evening service, like a revival service, Pentecostal revival meeting. He trips and falls and literally breaks his arm and his nose. <laughs> and he's like, the devil pushed me down. I'm like, no player, you are running in the dark and that is dumb. Okay, stop it. The devil didn't push you down. You were running in the dark. If you're a kid, you just learned two things today. You don't run towards fire and you don't run in the dark and blame the devil. So now you know. Um, so yeah, contrary to popular opinion, the devil did not make you do it because he has no force of what power. He has no force of power. He only uses the force of deception. So he lays a trap and all he did was plant thoughts, plant seeds, plant influences, create suggestions, create ideas, get you into a fantasy world of what if, and wouldn't it be so great if, and you start thinking about all these things and then you are bought into an illusion. You're bought into a lie, and the lie that Eve bought was, is this could be a good thing for me. Sometimes you buy into this lie too. What is God keeping me from? What if, what, you know, because some of you, if you don't trust God, you're like, oh, what is God trying to keep me from? Can you imagine that had to be part of Eve's thought, right? Well, why would God say I could have everything but this one thing? Is he trying to... Is he trying to keep something good from me? Is he? Oh, oh, wait, so it's to know wisdom? It's to have wisdom? It's to know good and evil? Which is a fascinating thought to think that the one tree that they couldn't have was called what? The tree of the knowledge of good and evil? What was the one thing God was trying to protect you from? From your own ability to judge everyone else by a measuring stick of what you believe was good and what you believe was evil. Why do you think it is that you have a hard time genuinely loving everyone around you? It's because you know too much good and you know too much evil and now you have a measuring stick and by that you begin to treat other people either better than they deserve or worse than they deserve based on your individual judgment, not a divine understanding of good and wrong. Are you hearing me? What? God is not trying to keep you from something good. God is trying to set you up for something great. And as soon as you begin to trust your heavenly father, that he only has your best interest in mind, that he is never ever keeping you from a good thing, but he is only protecting you from a harmful thing. Then you will begin to obey God's commands confidently. But you got to buy into that. You got to believe that. So let's keep going. So 
The Bible says this, that, that again, the temptation was just a setup, that the devil didn't make them do it. And, and then the story kind of comes back to the enemy at the end. So God goes and confronts Adam and Eve. He's like, hey, where'd you go? What are you doing? What happened? Tell me, tell me about it. They blame everybody else, but taking responsibility for themselves. But in verse 14, the serpent re-enters the story. Are you ready? Verse 14 says, so the Lord God said to the serpent. So it's God speaking to the spiritual enemy. Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all the cattle. And more than every beast of the field on your belly, you shall go and you shall eat what dust all the days of your life. I want you to just kind of catch this little nugget of, of, of thought here that the enemy already had certain instincts. He was instinctually crafty and cunning. He was instinctually deceptive. He was much more magician and illusionist than he was, you know, wicked witch of the east or, or west or any direction you can think about. And so that's that's his That's his instinct. That's his flow. But what was he cursed to do? He was cursed to his belly to eat dust. Now, if you go back to Genesis chapter 2, when God formed man, he formed man from the dust of the earth. So your physical being is made up of dust. And the serpent was cursed to eat dust. And in the New Testament, the Bible warns you as a believer to never live out of your fleshly desires. Why would that be? Because the same flesh and body that you were basically made out of, your flesh and body being was made from the dust of the earth. And that's the very thing he was cursed to eat for the rest of his life. I guess what I'm trying to tell you is this, is be careful that you don't live and operate in the flesh because that is what your spiritual enemy feeds off of. Let's read Galatians chapter 5 and maybe this will make more sense. Galatians chapter 5, Paul is warning Christians and challenging and encouraging them, walk in the spirit Meaning walk where your spirit is so connected to God and your source of strength and life and faith come from God and out of that flow everything, not your carnal, earthly, fleshly desires. Here's what he says, walk in the spirit and then you won't be fulfilling all these desires, these lustly, fleshly desires. For the flesh lust against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. Meaning there's two things constantly at war within you. You have a spiritual desire to do God's ways. You have a spiritual desire to do it the divine way and to have the divine instinct, but don't get it twisted. Inside of your fleshly, earthly body, which you are born into sin with, there's a sin instinct. There's a sinful desire within you. And these two desires are always at war within each other. But when you, when you walk by the spirit, you're not going to do that. Like you can't do both at the same time. You're either, either living out of your spirit or you're living out of your flesh, but you're not doing both at the same time. It's impossible. Because they're contrary to one another so that you do not do the things that you wish. That's why you get to the end of, of an argument. You're like, God, why would I say that? Or you get to the end of a, a, of a relationship and how it all went and what you did. And you have all these regrets. You're like, why would I do that? Why, would I, why did I act that way? Because you were living out of your flesh. You were doing things the way your body instinctually through its sinful nature would want to do it, but not living out of your spirit, your divine instinct. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. I could explain that basically like God's ways don't even have laws, meaning like if you truly just lived out of love and kindness and patience, do we have laws against that? No, we don't have to worry about laws. Put it this way. When you live out of God's love and kindness and mercy and patience, do we have to worry about you like, okay, don't commit murder. Don't commit you know, theft or, you know, don't don't beat people up. Don't road rage. No, that, so you get what I'm saying? So now the works of the flesh, 
your fleshly instinct. Remember, we're talking about instincts. Now, the works of the flesh are evident because they're adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lewdness, idolatry, sorcery, hatred, contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, dissensions, heresies. There's a lot of envy, murder, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, which just basically means everything that's kind of in that category. Of which I tell you beforehand, and just as I told you in times past, that those who practice, they live in these things. They practice them. They do will not enter the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is what? It's love. Joy. We don't have a law against joy. We don't worry about joyful people, loving people, peaceful people, loving, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such there is no law. And those who are Christ have what? Crucified the flesh with its passions or with its desires. We would say, you know what you do as a Christian? You take your instincts and you murder them. You take your instincts and you kill them. You take your instincts, you put them on a cross, you kill them. You annihilate them. You, you move as far away from them as you possibly can. Because as long as you keep living out of the flesh, you're going to lead a life that's constantly moving towards death, destruction, darkness, negative outcomes. And you are fueling the enemy's power in your life. Because that is what he feeds off of. He is cursed to the ground to feed off of your fleshly instincts. That's where he thrives. Now, here's what I want you to know. Is that if, if the enemy has no force of power, but he uses the, forces of the force of deception, our greatest weapon against the enemy is simply God's truth. Like, I want, to, I want you to catch something real quick here. Most people miss this. When you read the story... The serpent said, did God really say that you can't eat of the tree that's in the middle of the garden? And she responded and she actually misquotes God. Now, I don't know if Adam didn't pass it along right or she just messed it up. But she said, you cannot eat it, nor can you touch it. Now, did God ever say you can't touch it? No, he didn't say that. He said, just don't eat it. I, don't, I mean, maybe they could go juggle. I have no idea if throwing the fruit was fine, if juggling the fruit was fine. You could build a tree house in that tree for all I know. He never said anything about that tree other than what? Just don't eat it. But she misquotes God, meaning she had a warped perception of what truth was. She wasn't even completely clear on what truth was. And here's what you're going to see about people in life and people that are victorious in life. They have a very, very clear picture of what is true and what is false. They have a very, very clear picture of what God's word says and why it says it and how it says it. And it keeps me from making mistakes. Or I'll, I'll put it like how David put it. God, I have hidden your word in my heart so that I might not sin against you. And the reason why some of us stumble and the reason why some of us sin or the reason why some of us constantly live in darkness is because we are blinded. We literally cannot see truth for what it is and we cannot see lies for what they are. We are totally blind. When the Apostle Paul, before he became the Apostle Paul, he was murdering Christians and he was into all kinds of self-righteousness by his own admission. But when he got saved, the Bible says that God blinded him. And when he had another Christian brother pray for him, that literally scales fell off of his eyes. What was on his eyes? I'm telling you, some of us are blinded by the God of this world. We do not see truth for what it is, and we do not see lies for what they are. And we totally buy into the lies, and we totally listen to all the other influences. And some of them come through movies and television and music and all kinds of media outlets. They come through influences like our friends and peers and people around us. And all these things come in, and we're like, well, yeah, maybe that is true. Oh, well, maybe they do have a good point. Or maybe, and all of a sudden, we start buying into all these ridiculous lies. And the reason why is because we do not have a firm grasp of what truth is. It's no different than when you work at a bank and you are, are trained in how to spot counterfeit money. The way that you spot counterfeit money is by constantly handling what is true. 
And as you constantly touch and handle what is true, you, they don't, like when they train them, they don't say, hey, look, here's counterfeit, here's counterfeit. I want you to look at counterfeit, look at counterfeit. No, no. We just want you to so be engrossed in that which is true and that which is real. That way, when anything comes along that doesn't feel like it, smell like it, touch like it, I mean everything that you could possibly think of. When it doesn't line up with that, all of a sudden a radar goes off, a flag goes up. And, you know, something goes off, he says, something is not right about this. But yet we're so bought into a lost and broken world that when certain images come along, we're like, oh, well, maybe maybe that's OK for them. Maybe that is OK. Maybe that's and all of a sudden we become this relativist society where anything goes and there's nothing wrong with anything. It's because we totally lost sight of the truth. This is why Jesus said this. He said, when you know the truth, the truth shall set you free. So the only way that you get over the hump and you get into what, what God's best is for your life is when you become so immersed in his truth that his truth is so real to you and everything else is foreign. I'll prove it to you and we'll close here. Jesus is, ten, again, I told you in Matthew 4, Satan's temptation to Jesus is very similar to Satan's temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. He begins with a question, well, if you're really the son of God, he creates a, a, a suggestion, well, if you're really the son of God, he, he later creates a contradiction where he misquotes scripture himself to Jesus. And at the end, he stirs the imagination because he literally takes Jesus to a pinnacle, shows him all the world and said, I'll give you everything if you'll just bow and worship. He stirs the imagination. Nothing has changed. But Jesus' response to every temptation that the enemy brought was, hey, look, sucker, the Bible says... It is written. You're not reading your Bible right because here's what God has said. And Jesus was so immersed in truth that anything else that came along looked foreign. It looked weird. It was abnormal to him. So for you to say that somehow this was okay or this was justifiable or this could be all right in our society or this could be morally okay. Are you out of your mind? That's crazy. That's insane. The Bible clearly says the truth of God is this and here's why. And when you're so immersed in the truth, I'm telling you that truth sets you free. From the trap, the snare, the deception of your spiritual enemy. You need to know his instincts because you need to know that he's always at work in an unseen realm in such subtle ways that more than likely at the time it's going on, you're not even aware of it. But wait and watch until you get immersed in truth and see how God uses that truth to set you free and to set you on a path towards an abundant and victorious life. Somebody say amen to that. Let's pray this morning. Jesus, we ask you, God, that you would encourage us, that you would build us up, that you would give us a desire and a hunger for your words. God, let us go out of here and make it a point to read our Bible, to, to have a daily devotion, to read and study scripture, God, to read other books, God, to soak in truth, God, so that we can point out the lie, so that the lie doesn't, doesn't just catch us off guard. So that anything that doesn't align with who you are and what you're about and your ways looks weird and foreign, God, let let us begin to see the subtle attempts of the enemy to distract us, to influence us, to contradict who you are and what you've said. God, help us to be so aware in those moments of what our spiritual enemy is up to. And God, help us to rise to the occasion, to stand up on truth and say, no, God, we're standing on your word. We're walking by faith, God. We're quoting your words, God. You're, we're hiding your words in our heart, God. So that we might live victoriously, we might live in your ways, in your will, that we might live your abundant life, God. Help us to always, God, fight against the desires of our flesh, God. To tap into that divine nature and that divine instinct, God. Help us to walk with you, to walk in the spirit, God. To draw closer and closer to you, God. Lord, that's our prayer today in Jesus' name. And we all said, amen. amen. Can you give the Lord a big hand clap this morning?